Hello, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers Festival. I hope you enjoy this conversation from our podcast series. Well, hello. Thank you for joining us here today at the Sydney Writers Festival. How exciting is it to be finally here and all together? Before we go anywhere, um, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, who have watched over and guarded and nurtured this patch of land since well, well, well before anybody started talking about writers' festivals. And um, uh, our guest today, Al Campbell, with whom I'll, to whom I'll introduce you very shortly, has come all the way from the Yagra and Turrbal uh, lands and is visiting Sydney for the first time in a very long time. Very, very long time. Now, I would like to introduce you to Al. Um, I only met her myself, um, really a matter of 40 minutes ago. <laughs> in my dreams, this meeting was going to be luxurious, we would laugh, we would drink wine, we would get acquainted. Uh, and then uh, the federal election was called to thoughtfully coincide with Sydney Writers Festival. And so my conversations with Al have amounted to a series of highly stressed telephone calls, some sort of nuts emails, and then we fell into each other's arms uh, we did. Uh, very recently. We've been dancing out the back together, <laughs> slow dancing. But I feel like I know her really well. It's one of these weird situations. So I'll tell you how I came to know Al. Um, a year or so ago, I got a manuscript from um, UQ Press and uh, with a note saying, this is a new writer, I think you might really like this book. And I started reading and then I kind of was drawn in, almost like one of those, you know, those movies where kids get drawn into video games. Suddenly you're in this world and it, it was a book that I could not stop reading. Sometimes I had to put it down and take a breath and then I returned to it because it was this magical, extraordinary, harsh, beautiful story. And a lot of it is true. <laughs> so, Al Campbell has been an actor, a bar attendant, <laughs> a mother, a carer, and now she is a writer. And I commend this book to you. When I was asked what new work I would um, pick to introduce a new writer to the festival, I only had one answer and it was this book because this book has been sort of in my blood ever since I read it. Now, Al, I'm going to let you talk uh, now. No, that's OK. <laughs> I'm good. When we were talking backstage and we were talking about the process of becoming a writer, you started sort of at the very beginning back when you were at primary school with an interaction with the creative arts that kind of changed your life a little bit. So can you tell that story just by way of beginning? Yes. Um, so um, I started school when I was too young. Um, mother didn't want me around. And so she lobbed me at the nuns at the local Catholic primary when I was four. Um, and so they took me. What else could they do? And uh, so I ended up in my first year of high school. I was... I was still only 11. And um, so uh, my class as English teacher, I've had so many wonderful teachers, took us off at night to see a play, which of course I'd, I'd never experienced. And it was UNESCO's The Chairs. Obviously, you're all very familiar with <laughs> Eugene Yesco. If not, very, very quickly, it's, I think, from memory, a one-act play, and uh, there's only two characters, and they're in their 90s. And the old man has had a vision a dream of the meaning of life. And um, he, uh, he cannot speak it, though. So the orator, capital T, capital O, must speak the vision. The orator must tell humankind what the meaning of life is. And the orator is coming to do just this. The whole village is coming to the old couple's living room that night to hear the orator speak. So the whole play is just this elderly couple in their 90s ferrying chairs onto the stage, which is meant to be their living room, um, so that the village can come and sit down and hear the orator speak. And then you hear a knock on the door and you hear sound effects of 
people murmuring and coming in, and you see the old couple greeting people, but there's nobody there. So you think, just a couple of saddos, you know, a bit bonkers. <laughs> so anyway, well, that's what I thought when I was 11. And, <laughs> and then there's a, and everyone's seated, and, and then there's another knock at the door, and the old couple, oh, it's the orator. And of course you think, nobody's going to be there. No, a third actor comes on stage and he's all very, you know, berobed and he's got this sort of theatrical makeup and he's all terribly, terribly and, and they're all very deferential and he stands up at the dais at the front of the living room to deliver the vision, throws open his arms to speak, his mouth to speak and he's mute and that's the end of the play. <laughs> Now, of course, all the other high schoolers were sitting around, what the f*** was that about? <laughs> Couldn't wait to get out. The house lights came up, and I was almost weeping with gratitude. I thought, I'm never leaving this auditorium. I am never leaving this auditorium. I'm there. Like, I want to be absorbed. Somebody gets it. This bloke called UNESCO gets the nightmarish, contradictory absurdity of existence. It's not just me. He does as well. And can I stick with this bloke? Because he gets what I'm going to go home to and how unpredictable that is and how that's completely out of my control and it all depends on my mother's mood and anything might happen, anything at all. And so that was UNESCO, my gateway drug. Then came Harold Pinter... And then I was gone because Sam Beckett came into my life. <laughs> but I truly believe that if I was one of those kids, girls, who'd had Charlotte's Web and Heidi and Anne of Green Gables shoved at me, I'm not sure I'd still be here. Because I'd have thought, well, that's existence, is it? That's life. That's what everybody else has, is it? What's, what have I done wrong? What's wrong with us? Because I'm not like that. So, so what was your childhood like? So my mother didn't want me, and then she didn't like me, and she raised me accordingly. That about sums it up, I think. <laughs> she was buried on Monday. It's all right, thank you. So when you graduated from school, along with your chums, Pinter and UNESCO, <laughs> what, what did you think your life was going to be? Oh, I had no idea. And I think because of who I was, because I'd been the kid who had to be whatever my mother needed me to be. And not to labour the point, but anyone who's ever been raised by a narcissistic parent, especially a narcissistic mother, you have to be whatever she needs you to be whenever she needs you to be it. It's kind of like being, you know, those Elizabethan troops who caravaned around and they're going to put on Hamlet and the actors, you know, you play different roles. So tonight you'd be Hamlet and tomorrow night you'd be Gertrude and the night after you'd be Fortinbras and you had to know them all. I was a bit like that. So there was no me. There was just all of the roles that I had to play. And so I think with Pinter and Beckett... And those guys, that was sort of what led me to acting rather than the acting itself. Mm. And also people, there's a, a miscomprehension uh, about actors, which is, you know, you must be really confident. And how can you be an introvert if you're an actor? No, you're not you. You're not there. You're up on stage as somebody else. You're saying somebody else's words. Everybody claps at the end and buys you a beer at the bar. I mean, it's a, you're not even there. It's, it's, it's the perfect career for somebody who has no idea who they are or where they're going. Okay, what about when you had children? Well, that was a game changer because then a role was given to me. I didn't go seeking it. Um, and so then there was, there was a big learning curve. So then I became this, this other entity and I learned a whole lot of new tricks and um, had to... Uh, I suppose I, um, I still wasn't me, really, because then I was pushing planets. I was a planet pusher. And, yeah, keeping planet Fraser, planet Rupert up in the air all the time. Tell us about what happened when you had kids. Um, well, uh, it's... I think one of the things that I tried to convey in The Keepers is um, most people, not everybody... But most people, when they become a carer, they become a carer in an instant. Somebody has an accident and you become a carer. 
somebody is born, you become a carer. Somebody receives a diagnosis and you become a carer. So you don't ever expect it and therefore you're never prepared. But you're still expected to hit the ground running because, well, you've got no time not to. So um, I definitely became someone I never thought I'd be, um, very outspoken advocate. Um, you read a lot, you learn a lot. Um, yeah, you become very tired. I'm only 28, see what it does to you? <laughs> the interesting thing about your, and the reason I'm asking Al these questions about her own life is that the novel broadly traces the patterns of your own life, although it could never be a memoir, I think, because the kind of writing that makes the book so extraordinary would never belong in a memoir. It's almost an allegory, and it owes its power, I think, to the points at which it sort of lifts off from the, the timeline and the facts of your, of your own life. Mm. Um, it seems to me that your, your, your development as a writer has kind of happened a bit in reverse. I mean, sometimes people um, think, I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to practice, and I'm going to go to all these workshops, and I'm going to work out the things that I like about the books that I love, and I'm going to smash them all up and put them through the moolie of my own brain, and then, you know, I'm going to come up with a book. But you kind of seem to have been ferociously writing and writing and writing, and then at some point gone, oh, crikey, that is a book. That's correct. So I'm just interested in what... Because you'd always thought, perhaps I could have been a writer, right? But it's too late for me. Hmm. Yes, I was always one of those people. This sounds ridiculous. I was always one of those people. Back in the days when we wrote letters even before emails. And, you know, I had friends, they'd live interstate, I'd write them a letter, and, you know, it was like, Joanne, we've just got a letter from Elaine, put the kettle on! You know, because it would take them five hours to read it, because it just went on and on. And they, they sort of always thought my letters were kind of fun. And, um, yeah, so the whole writing thing, really, like, yes, I'd had the story with Mrs Lohman saying, reading out my World War II nurse spy story to the class, you know, in grade seven and saying, you used to be a writer one day. And, but then there was me sort of just being a drifter, which is all I've ever been and not taking anything seriously. And um, then in 2006, um, this book called Julia, Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way sort of fell into my lap. And um, I was not in a good spot at that stage. I was pretty stressed I remember hearing um, Magda Zabanski at one stage had written or described herself as being 99% um, Cadbury's. And I thought, okay, I could definitely relate to that. But I also feel like I'm 99% stress. Like really, I'm really good at compacting it, but it's really starting to bang up Stamp it all down. Now. Keep stamping. And, and what happens when there's just no more room? What am I going to do? Because sometimes things happen. What's that going to look like? So I, there was this book and this lady, Julia Cameron, advocates this, this, this practice called the morning page. You get a notebook, you pick up a pen and you write by hand three pages every morning, if you can, or at some stage in the day, and you just keep your hand moving. So it doesn't matter what you write. And Julia even says, even if you just write, I don't know what to write, I don't know what to write, I don't know what to write, and that's all you've got, three pages of that, that's fine. Things will, you know, loosen up. So they're all right. It costs money, nothing, which is excellent because I have no money and uh, I can do it at home or I could do it whenever. So I started doing this and I, you might be surprised to know I never got to the point where I wrote, I don't know what to write. But I did have days where I wrote, I don't know what to do. 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 Please help me three pages of that. I didn't know who I was asking for help, but I probably would have taken it because I was tired and I was very lonely and I was busted ass broke and I felt like I couldn't make a good decision on lunch, let alone life or three lives, the boys, mine, four, the Jack Russell. So... Um, and they don't forgive. Yeah, they don't. So um, then Rupert got sick. 
really sick. Uh, it's your younger son. My younger son. He's yeah. autistic and he's nonverbal. And he started, um, he was dying. He was shriveling into non-existence. He couldn't eat and couldn't keep anything down. And we landed in hospital and we basically stayed there more or less for the next 18 months. He had very long stays. So we'd be in for five weeks and out for three days and back in for 10 days and out for a fortnight, back in for a month, just like that. So I had my little laptop, which I still have, and I had it to read or try and read scholarly medical articles about what the hell was going on with my kid and the drugs, the list of drugs that was this long as he was in a coma and he had a feeding tube and all the things. Um, and, um, and then the morning pages sort of stopped and this other, it seemed self-propelled. And because I wasn't writing a book, see the good thing about not knowing the rules is you don't have to obey them. <laughs> so there was just this self-propelled, and there were no filters, no censoring. It just spewed out, and I basically wrote the present timeline of the book uh, on the ninth floor of the Queens and Children's Hospital. Yeah. See, some writers fear the blank page, mm -mm. but you don't seem to. No, and, and that, you know, it's the only place where I can control some, something. <laughs> the rest of my life is completely. Okay. Knows? So we know where the book was written. Just give us a quick paint a sketch of... Can you paint a sketch? I don't know. Sketch a sketch. Or paint a painting. I can try. I mean, one or the other. Peter yeah. Lane Crab. Um, who's in the book? Who are the characters? So uh, there is... The main character is, is Jay. And so we see her as a child from four till last year of high school. And then uh, her mother... Lonnie, then Jay and her grandparents. And then there's her two children that she grows up to have her twins in the book, twin boys. And there is her, um, so that's obviously based on, on my life. And Jay is married to um, a, a tall, handsome Danish man. Sadly, that is not based on my own life. <laughs> and... Um, and she has um, a, a, another important character is, um, is the character of Keep, Mr. Keep, who appears, he steps out of a pile of books one day when she's about, I don't know, seven or eight or something, when she's in a spot of bother. And he actually appears in her life before she realises he appears in her life. And um, also, just on the record... I do not personally have an imaginary being in my room. That would be helpful, especially if he looked a bit like Daniel Craig. That'd be nice. <laughs> but no, it's just me. They're not much practical help, are they, the imaginary friends? No, not really. Mm. Mm. So here we get to a point where, as a writer, this stuff is flooding out of you. It's based on the things that you're going through. At some point as you start to develop the conviction that this might actually a book, be a book that might be printed on pages. Mm -hmm. How do you tangle with this idea of fictionalising your own life? Is it a big step to take to, um, to, to decide that that will be the form rather than, for instance, memoir? I never thought about writing memoir um, because of that whole sort of pyrotechnic gymnastic thing that I like to do with words. And the way I like to represent stuff and um, when Keep... It's one of the best things about the book. Thank so, you. Yeah. And when Keep came, I mean, there was, there's no putting him into a memoir. Sure. Unless, you know... Mm -hmm. And the Just thing with memoir... scrolling through the memoirs I've read. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Um, uh -uh. telling a memoir would have involved uh, speaking of other people's right. experience because there are... I have siblings and I did not feel like I wanted to involve their stories. The thing with memoir and fiction, though, is funny. You can't sort of win. Because um, with memoir, you know, people read a memoir and go, oh, seriously, doubt this was, you know, happening. And, but then they read fiction. It's like, oh, I didn't know that was going on. <laughs> so, you Also, know. there's rules with memoir, too, aren't there? Because if you want to get your memoir published, I mean, you're either, hi, I'm on television. You've all been waiting for my memoir. <laughs> Or, which not the case for you, right? Yeah. Or there's, 
I'm just going to tell about this terrible thing that's happened to me. And you can all read it and think, oh, how terrible. How terrible. <sighs> Which yeah. you didn't really want to do either. No, I didn't. And I wanted to, I wanted to have a bit of fun, you know, doing it. And I mean, the writing part was for me. Um, uh, and, and I didn't feel like, um, I, I, I wanted to have fun and I wanted to, look, as I was saying to you earlier, Sadly, when you say the word disability, you've lost 90% of your audience. I know this because I live this life with my children. People start looking for the exit. Well, what other book have you got? Sorry, got something else. So I felt I had to work very hard to write a book that had engaging characters that the reader could get behind, that was a bit, that was engaging, was a bit funny. I mean, it's a bit funny, bits are funny. Bits are awful, but some bits are funny. I describe it as craggy. There are craggy some spiky. craggy. It's yeah. spiky because there are moments where I just—I mean, you're a very funny writer, so you feel this sort of bubble of laughter coming up, and then the next moment you're just like, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. It is. Yeah. It's got a spiky topography, I would well, say. Well, I had to do that light and dark because all you can't sort of start with dark and then go like this because the book would just be shut and not looked at again. Um, so, yeah, and for me to sort of do the sort of bouncing around and creative. So I, I love that sort of spec ficky seam in books myself. So to be able to include that, well, obviously people just think differently of me if I wrote a memoir containing an imaginary person. <laughs> <laughs> so the arc of the book is, I mean, Jay's life, and it's, it's a life that is almost like a cubby house, you know, it's a, it's a close, small place that she inhabits around the clock with her two boys and this keep who pops out of the bookcase every now and again and is mm. handsome. Um, and then there's the husband who lives upstairs and who can't hack looking after the children. Um, and then as you move through the book, you find out more about Jay's childhood and you meet this terrifying mother and grandfather. Um, and I wonder, you were talking about, well, we were talking about rules in memoir. Are there rules in writing fiction too about what you can get characters to do? Yes. What you're allowed to do? Yes, I, I think there are. I think they don't tell you that there are, but there are. And so, for example, um, because the character of Lonnie was based very much on my own mother, um, I was advised um, early on that um, this mother is too much. And I said, but, but she was really like that. I don't care. Write me a memoir then. But for fiction, she's too much. So... I divvied up the bad, bleak, dark between grandfather and mother so that mother is diluted a lot. I cannot believe that you've dialed her back because she seems pretty awful mm. in the novel. And I changed her substantially in the, in the way that in the book she's uh, a bit of a drinker sometimes mm. But also she's, she's desperate for a man to take care of her and deliver her from this life she feels she should not have, that she is entitled to greater things. My mother did not drink. She didn't need a drink. And she, there were no boyfriends, like really, because who would step up for that? Um, I had 110% of her attention um, all the time. I was the trophy daughter. I had to be smarter, faster. I had to be prettier. I had to be skinnier. I had to be everythinger. And uh, I really, really had to be, or there was trouble. But you see, even to write that, to write her that way, that's a whole book. I mean, even when they're not around, narcissists manage to make all, take all the oxygen from everything. And I thought, no, I can't. I've got to ease up. I've got to leaven her with something because otherwise the whole book becomes about that. And I wanted for the reader to see the impact on Jay's life 
but also to have Jay this, this other side of, of what goes on with her and to tell this other story about her. I didn't want that whole relationship to dominate everything. Did she read the book, Al? Did my... Mother. No. You know, you, were, you appeared recently at the Brisbane Writers Festival with Trent Dalton. Yeah. Trent, who was there to talk about love. And that's what Trent does. I mean, he is extraordinary on the topic of love. And yes. he's like a human firework, basically, Trent, yeah. right? Yes. What is your definition of love? Because it feels like to me that this book is the most profound description of love. It's like describing a colour to somebody who can't see. Mm. Yeah, with, um, yeah, as you say, with Trent, he... Um I felt like the Grinch who stole Christmas on the panel with Trent. <laughs> I thought, how did I end up here? So anyway, yeah, I've just got a few stats uh, to, to define love, and I promise I get through them really fast. But I've never had a love stat, you know, okay. incorporated in one of these sessions, so I'm all for it. But I'm talking your language, Annabelle, because I'm talking about the 2020 Deloitte Access Economics Report. I'm, I'm shuddering with anticipation. <laughs> Oh, I love a study. Uh, Go. No, everyone's anxious, breathless. So, uh, in 2020, there were 2.8 million informal carers in Australia, which equates to about 10.8% of the population, providing 2.2 billion hours of care. Most informal carers are family members. And the cost of replacing this informal care with paid workers would be an estimated $78 billion. So... The current these, deficit, guys. <laughs> so these carers, as it happens, are less likely to be employed full-time, less likely to work in flexible industries, more likely to take unpaid leave, more likely to stop paid work altogether, more likely to live in households with lower average gross incomes than non-carers, and in every study undertaken on the subject, is likely to experience poorer physical and mental health than non-carers. So, in short, we, the unblessed, right? are more likely to be unemployed renters in poor health and broke. I can tick every single one of those boxes. In the next eight years, the demand for informal care is expected to increase by 23%. And yet, in the back of the book, there are, um, what do we call them, book club questions. In surveys conducted in both Australia and around the world, the care and welfare of people with a disability routinely ranks last as the social issue of most concern to respondents. So I reckon those 2.8 million carers who rock out of bed every morning, probably after a filthy night's sleep, and put one foot in front of the other and show up, that's love. <laughs> Thank you. When we were talking backstage, Al, you said that you really wish that you'd had a disability doula mm. when you were starting out. Yeah. And what a great concept that is. Yes, again, when I was at the hospital, um, it, um, my son was in a coma and the tube, the main tube that goes down, you know, mouth into wherever, had migrated, as they call it, it had moved. And so it had to be adjusted or pulled out or something. And they don't let family be in the room when this is being done. Obviously, they don't need a freaking out mother staring at all the medical people trying to do this. So I had to leave the room. So I went and sat in the corridor of this, of the PICU, the Paediatric Intensive Care Unit. On one side, 18 beds for the babies. On the other side, 18 beds. 36 whole beds for the whole of Queensland's children in intensive care. That's another discussion perhaps another panel and I was sitting there waiting and it was raining so I could see I could, wouldn't hear it but it was raining I could see through the window at the end of the corridor and I couldn't help but overhear being a writer it's a bit snoopy and um, I could hear this discussion between these two young mothers so their babies were in the baby side newborns and one asked so what's the update and the other said it was, a, it was a boy. I changed it to a girl because I thought there were enough boys in this story. And she's, she was a newborn baby girl. And uh, she was explaining this um, list of things 
that uh, of disabilities that her newborn had and what she'd been told and how he was vision impaired, um, how we may walk, but we don't know a whole lot of other things. Um, we don't know if, we, if he can hear. The tone in her voice, I thought, I know that tone. Huh. That was my voice a long time ago. And I thought, you know what that girl needs? She needs me to go home with her because she doesn't know it's hit her yet. She doesn't know that her life's changed right now in ways she's got no idea. It'll, it'll come eventually. But she needs somebody like me to go, I can't, you know, to go home with her so that she can be a new mum and get to know her new baby. But I can hit the phones and the emails and the bureaucracy and I can get her in touch with the right agency portal and I can send the email to the right person. I can cut through the shit so that she doesn't have to waste her time doing it. I can put her in touch with the right doctors. I can get, put her in touch with the right allied health professionals and not them tell her how many hours she needs them and how much she ought to pay them. I can cut through all that. She's going to have to go home like I did and work this all out by herself. I thought if, if ever we, you know, we have death doulas and we have birth doulas, I really, really think we need something like that would be helpful. It's extraordinary to think of how many people walk the same path to And busy. yet they're all alone. Right, but too overwrought and overburdened to be able to see the other people on the same. Yeah. Or the ones that are two years ahead. And so, because, you, because once you hit that road, you don't stop running. Mm. I mean, you know, some people have family support. In my instance, no. There was no. It's just us. So perhaps that's where that cubby house um, mm. sort of feel came from the book. I've got that section in the book it, about that that I... Did you want me to read that? Well, I would actually like the audience just to hear, because, I mean, it's one thing for us to talk about your life and your experiences of writing, but the, the, quite, the remarkable thing about this book is your facility as a writer, which is um, for someone who just plopped down on a floor on a, in a hospital and ripped this stuff out, it's <laughs> quite um, prodigious. So why don't you give them a blast? <laughs> Look, and, and the other thing is, um, for those who haven't read the book, um, Jay can only deal with so much. And when it gets to the point where she just can't see anymore or take on board anymore, things, problems turn into creatures. And, that's, and she refers to them as the other things. So that's her sort of shut-off point, I think. So the, the other things are in this scene. It's not too long. From around a corner, two women, new mothers, one sobbing. I can't help but hear the young mother's tears and the silence of the other who cannot possibly know what to say. They reckon she'll walk one day, probably, but she's definitely vision impaired. As for all the other things, too early to tell. But I know she won't have long to wait. Other things grow unfairly fast. This is her first baby, her only baby. The baby who won't see, but who might walk, might not. And I wish I could talk her through it. That day that she finally takes her child home and notices the leak in her ceiling. It will be in a room far down the hall, a spare room for storage overnighters. She'll place a bucket under the leak to catch the drips. In the next downpour, the leak will become urgent. The drips have more heft. The bucket fills quickly. She'll buy one that is bigger, then another, many more. Her baby's father will try to patch it, but only makes it worse. The carpet is ruined. Crusty brown mould cankers the ceiling. It leaks even when it's not raining. One night during a storm, the young mother will get up on a stepladder, hold a baby's blanket to the leak. Quickly sodden, it will be thrown to the floor, replaced by another, one that is thicker than a towel, a blanket. Soon she'll have emptied the linen cupboard. She tapes plastic to the ceiling, but the tape won't hold. The whole roof sways with damp. Before long, the house is flooded, water ankle deep, furniture floats, table legs ooze and pulp. One day, desperate, she'll hold her mouth to the leak and swallow. With her lips to the ceiling, she won't know if it is day or night. She'll decide it doesn't matter. Nothing else will be done. No cakes baked, no play dates, everything stamped overdue. 
No time for more children. The mother dares not leave the drip. Her jaw will ache and her child will cry, but she will stay focused, her mouth open, swallowing, swallowing. It is the only thing that works, more or less. The only thing that stops them being swept away. The leak will be all she consumes, other appetites gone. Her husband and the years will scatter. People will check on her from time to time in the room far along the hall. They will praise her, her composure and strength. They'll see she's no longer unmoored, as once she had been, her bloated blue lips now fused with the ceiling, her feet with the rusted tears below. They will see she no longer frets about fixing the leak, no longer waits for the day when she will climb down from the ladder. We'll see ourselves out, her visitors wave, cheery bye. Everyone's so relieved. None will notice the other things, their flickering pinprick eyes hunting the halls, deciding who may leave and who may not claiming the house as their own. Cheery bye, call the visitors who glide by the rippling pelts, wet and slick against the walls, mistaking them for ulcered paint, hearing not the red roars of triumph, only the skirling screams of a bird. That's it. <laughs> Thank you. Did writing the book without wanting to overwork your metaphor, um, and apologies if I am, but did writing the book feel like taking your mouth off that leak? I'm afraid that's overworking the metaphor. <laughs> um, Damn it! <laughs> nope. I think somewhere, in, I don't know, my Twitter bit or something, I write, mother and carer and then brackets, who writes? And that's it, because anyone out there who is a carer, like, it's not part-time, and you don't delegate, and um, that's what you do. That's your full-time job, and everything else comes around it. So what it did was just the act of writing. Julia's right. You keep your hand moving. What was the name of that book again? Because the Artist's I'm sure there'll be Way. People, the Artist's Way. Julia Cameron. And... Um, Martin Scorsese's ex-girlfriend, you know, just to sort of, if you want the Hello Dolly sort of perspective. Um, anyway, Martin did the morning pages too. She thinks she really helped him. Um, and Martin never acknowledged, you know, men. Anyway, um, I think the act of writing the book, that definitely helped me. I mean, that was when you said, you know, who am I or what do I do or what do I do, what am I? I don't know, but I just between four and seven, which is when I write. It's quiet and I've got control and I'm in the driver's seat and I can just do all this stuff that maybe I would have got around to, but you know, I probably wouldn't have. I think if my son hadn't got sick, there'd be no keepers and you know, you all wouldn't be here. Um, but no, then it's just back to work as normal. And in fact, it's just to quickly illustrate that. The book came out on the 1st of Feb, and so um, I gave it to my son. My darling boy is here somewhere, somewhere. And, um, and he, you know, he's a hard marker because, you know, he reads, um, you know, Lord of the Flies and Clockwork Orange, and he, you know, he made time for my book. He's very grateful. And it was one night, um, so recently, and I was with my younger son, Rupert, who has terrible, 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 terrible trouble sleeping. In fact, Rupert spoke three nights ago. He doesn't speak. Um, I'll just tell you wow. the story. He, his, the sleeping is really, and everyone, you know, it's, it's, I'm not Robinson Crusoe. People with autism have difficulty sleeping. Rubbing the lavender oil in, how we do all the things. Trying to do the social story, darling, darling, it's really, really important that you sleep. Mummy needs some sleep, please, darling. You need some sleep, everybody. I can't, he said. So anyway, um, we were trying sort of a behavioural intervention and, and when we try new things with Rupert, it sounds like we are murdering Rupert and there is a lot of screaming and I am expecting the police to knock on the door because I wouldn't blame the neighbours for phoning because it sounds terrible things are going on. My other son, Fraser, and I were sitting at the dining table and it was like 1, 1.30 in the morning and um, the screaming was going on. 
and we were just holding out and Fraser finished the book and he turned to me crying and said, Mummy, thank you so much for writing this book. So having written, you know, that sort of juxtaposition of I wrote the book, he's reading the book, there's a book, I'm a writer, but we're still doing the behavioural intervention and it's 1.30 and we're at the dining table. And so it's all just one big gangbusters all the time now. <laughs> Listen, you're going to have a chance to ask, some, oh, crikey, we've only got 15 minutes left, what? Feels like we're only getting started, um, as the Prime Minister recently said. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> There are some microphones that I think are about to be hustled forward. So I'm just going to keep talking to Alan. If you want to um, jump in with a question, then just mosey along up to one of these microphones and lurk there. And out of my peripheral vision and with the aid of this lovely house lighting, thank you, I will see you and I will tastefully incorporate you into the conversation. All right? So if you've got something to ask, go for it. In the meantime, the other ramification, I guess, of, for you as a first-time writer writing a book that is fiction but also based on your own life is, I'm keen to know, where does that leave you critically? Like, how, what's the response been like to the book? My friends like it. <laughs> My darling sister likes it. Um, I don't know. I don't... I... I I might be paranoid, but um, I think I'm seen as a story and not a writer, which is fair enough, because, you know, I'm... Uh, so what you get asked about the most? I mean, hey, I, that's where I start. I don't get asked anything, Annabelle. Really? Yeah, no, not. So you're asking me things. Thank you very much. No, I think I'm just probably seen as this, this, uh, this odd old darling who popped up and wrote this book that's you know sort of mostly about herself and her kids and she'll quietly go away hopefully soon so well, you're not going to go away though no are you? no bloody not <laughs> so <laughs> um, so what's the next book about the next book is um also um a bit strange for us to know <laughs> so it's um it's a it's a bit of a gothic with a touch of the supernatural, because just you know, you write what you like, don't you? You like what you you read, you write what you want to read. So um, um, it has a giant, a real giant, like a person with gigantism. And uh, it's about family, it's about friendship, it's about loss, it's about redemption, and uh, it's told from the perspective of a traumatized house. So, you know, another uplifting saga <laughs> from Al Campbell. You're welcome. Jammed with laughs. <laughs> I hope so. The weird thing is your book is jammed with laughs. It's just... Well, oh. it's, got a bit, it's a bit of an homage to, to my mates, Pinter and Beckett, because there's actually three houses that are completely neurotic and talk to each other. And, you know, one will ask a question and one will give the answer. And, of course, the answer doesn't bear any relation to the question. And, and they're a bit, a bit potty and a bit old commandingly and bit of fun. One of the things I often find if I read a manuscript by a first-time writer, I often, um, you, can, you can trace the ghosts of the books that they've loved, right? You can tell the language that is filtered through from books that they've read and read again and love and, and aspire to in some way, you know, but I didn't find that with your book at all. I didn't think, oh, oh, oh you've been reading X, Y, Z at all. It was very original. And so I'm left in the dark as to, apart from your Pinter and mates, I mean, what books do you enjoy reading? Are there books that you read again and again? Or do you not have any time to read? What's, what's <laughs> no, 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 I do. Because there's no sleeping, so, <laughs> so I have lots of time to read. Yeah, I do read a lot. Um, and I've, I've normally got one, you know, in the car and then one at night. Um, I, I like stuff that really challenges me. I like to be, if, if you start to, if I start to pick up that, I know exactly the story you're going to tell me and how you're going to tell it to me, I tend to put those books aside. But if I've got, you know, I liked Lost, you know, like Lost, like I had no idea what was going on, but I found it very intriguing and they well, gave in the me... the TV series? Yeah, oh. like it sort of gave me enough to sort of keep reeling me in. So I like, I like to make my reader work a little bit. 
you know, some people might say, I make them work too hard. But their um, one review sort of said, once you get past Campbell's writing style, you won't be able to put it down. <laughs> and I remember saying, asking someone, is what, good? <laughs> what, what is this writing style of which they speak so that I can get rid of it? Because obviously it's alienating a lot of people. And the person I asked this question, I was like, stuff them. And I thought, yeah, I can't write any. It comes out how it comes out. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I just finished a book called The Last House on Needless Street. There's a talking cat. That's the kind of book I like. <laughs> a pattern emerges. <laughs> you did have, I mean, you did have some assistance through a writer's network, right? Well, once I'd written the book, I, um, no, wrote it alone. Yeah. Um, once I finished it, well, I guess, you know, me being me, I thought, this is probably rubbish, but so I need somebody to look at it. And so I just, um, I did a, did, did a course at the Australian Writers' Centre, which worked for me because you can pay it off, but also like the whole going to uni stuff, like, I, you know, I'm 50, I was 56 or something at the time. And I thought I'd just be a joke and I can't afford it anyway and I wouldn't get in and they wouldn't like me because nobody likes me and everyone thinks I'm weird and I can't do all that stuff and life's hard enough without going, hi, and everyone going, God. And, and uh, so, you know, with the Australian Writers' Centre, it's online, so no one has to see you. But the good thing about that is, uh, you know, someone's expecting some words next Tuesday. And that felt good to have that level of connection. Someone expected something from me next week. And then someone would say, I like this, or it was bollocks, or, and, you know, you need to work on that. So and a little so, framework to edge you out of your cubby house into like, oh, still alive out here, we're still breathing it's still something, not like one of those deep sea fish that you pull out and it just no. disintegrates. Yeah, no. And How's that for a metaphor? Yeah, that was really good yeah, and really well much. worked. Don't you agree? Yours with my compliments. Please. And thanks. And um, in fact, that was funny too. It's a similar sort of reaction. When the um, tutor in that course mm. read my synopsis, I, my superpower, if I have one, and I do, is writing novels where when you synopsize them, sound completely ridiculous. <laughs> And so the synopsis for this, oh, God, I should have read that out. Now, that would have you in stitches. But the tutor in this course said, oh, my God, who the hell do you expect to read this course, this book? It's so bleak. It's so dark. When she'd read the whole thing, she went, I think we need to get this out there. So I'd obviously hauled that fish back in, gussied it up, slapped some lipstick on, and it was ready to go. <laughs> Well, I must say, I, mean, I don't want to editorialise on the behalf of the audience, but I mean, I feel like I, I know you a bit from your book. I've just met you and I like you enormously, Aww. I have to say. Hey. Um, <laughs> I love you too, Annabelle. We have a Mind you, I'm in week six of an election campaign. I'm practically... She'd love anyone I'm at very, this point. Yeah. She'd love anyone who I'm doesn't... Is of course Scott. <laughs> I don't know what you mean. We have a question that's not from me. So, Hello. Ray. Hi. Um, I was just wondering, and you were leading up to it, did you have trouble finding a publisher? Was that agonising? Did you have to go through lots of rejections, that sort of thing? How did you get your publisher? You know what? I reckon, me and my life, you've got to get lucky sometime. And I got lucky. Um, I've got a very lovely, darling friend called Angela Slater, who is a, a fantasy writer. Um, and, and horror, but boy, is she clever and reads everything and is the best kind of, you know, she reads Evie Wilde and Hellboy, you know? I mean, she's just across everything. I showed it to her, sort of thinking she's going to go, Geez, okay, let's do some work. And she went, mm, I think we can send this out. And I knew two people in this space because she's in that sort of sci-fi horror space so she knows all those people, but she thought in the, in the sort of literary area, I know two people. 
So um, we tried the first one. And it was a typical publisher's rejection. Wow, this is fantastic. No, thank you. (laughs) And and she said, never mind. We move on to number two. And number two, um, who was Aviva Tuffield. Um, It was one of that got lucky. Uh, So Aviva, I think, received it on the Sunday night with a, a very polite Aviva email saying, I'm swarmed. I probably won't get to look at it for six to eight weeks. And I thought, that's fine. Like, that's quick. And you're doing me a favour. And I woke up to an email the next morning. I think we should talk. And we had a Zoom and that was that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> just want to say just quickly that you characterise that as luck. Some would characterise it as you wrote a really good book. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I mean, Aviva sent me the manuscript and I said, oh, I'm so busy. I'll just have a little... <laughs> Same thing happened with me. Thank that's you. not luck. That's, um, that's content. <laughs> Thank that's you very content. much. That's content. We are so nearly out of um, time. So um, I, I just wanted to bring it back because I think this is actually... Um, of all the spikiness and the darkness that is contained between the covers of this book, um, the most muscular lesson from it, I suppose, is is about love. And, you know, you grew up in a, a household with a person who didn't really know how to love, right? And so perhaps your life was an adventure in finding out, you know, how to move out from underneath that. Um, I don't know where this question is going. I really legitimately don't. But what I want <laughs> what I want to ask you, I suppose, is a bit about um, how do you learn what love is about when you haven't really been shown it um, early in life? Oh, that's easy. I met this boy called Rupert and this boy called Fraser. <laughs> Daniel Craig, too, if you're not. <laughs> you know, that seems like a perfect place um, for us to, to wrap things up. But I just wanted to say to you that, um, and I, I really do commend this book to all of you, it is a visit to a place that is not shown to the reading public all that often. No. So you have illustrated in the most beautiful and vivid way uh, the life that goes on inside the homes that carers live in that so often are kind of visited and then left again by people cheery by. And I think without even looking at the contribution that you've made to literature, I think you've made a contribution to our visibility to people who live your life, and there are many, many, many people, as you explained, in this country who live that life. And I think to achieve such a rich double contribution in a first novel that you wrote by yourself without having slept for more than 10 years... I thought thought she was going to say without having slept with anyone. No, well... (laughs) That'll be uh, in the next racy house-based novel... (laughs) Yes, don't you know, I'm, I'm writing a bonk buster next. <laughs> anyway, I think it's a profound achievement. Thank you so much for coming to Sydney. I know Thank it wasn't you. easy for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Annabelle. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel. <laughs>